0: You're listening to a Discourse ZA production.
1: Hello, we're back with The Small Print. I'm Bronwyn Williams, and today my guest is the very well-esteemed Dr. Ian Pearson, who is one of my favorite futurists and definitely one of the most respected futurists in his field. But like normal on the show, I want to give you the opportunity, Ian, to introduce yourself the way you would like to be introduced.
0: Well, hi, Bronwyn, and uh, thanks for having me here. Um, Yeah, I've been a futurist full time since 1991. So about 30 years, I guess. And uh, I've been doing front end engineering all my working life, Uh, always working on stuff which isn't going to be around for 10, 15, 20 years. So around about 1991, I discovered that it was much more fun talking about the world we'd be launching the technologies into rather than just doing the engineering design. So I'm still very much an engineer, but I look at the future now full-time and I look at it from an engineering perspective first and then try to work out the social and political economic implications from that. So pretty much the same as you're doing, but I've been doing it a lot longer. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. You should definitely defer to Ian's opinion over my own. He's got more experience and more time on the clock than I have. And when it comes to looking at the future, the broader perspective you have, particularly looking back and the more experience you have in the world, definitely the better you become at foreseeing what could and what more importantly should be unfolding in the future. there were really two conversations that I wanted to have with Ian today. The first one would be to look at his book that he put out a few years ago called Total Sustainability, which is going around on the rounds again, and for very good reasons, because a lot of the points that you address there come from a slightly contrarian, but also quite a rationalist perspective of how we need to deal with the climate issues that are unfolding around us. I think very few people would disagree that there is change in the climate. I mean, you can just turn on the news and see, flooded cities and burnt out tracts of land that simply weren't experiencing that degree of climate extremity, at least within sort of living memory. So there is some issue going on there. But the question now becomes, what do we do about it? What is the most effective, efficient and most pragmatic way to go forward from here. We have to understand the world as it is before we can make any sort of decisions as to what comes next. So I wanted to interrogate some of your more unusual and contrarian ideas that you have put out there into the world and that are finally getting their time of day. But like we always say when it comes to the future, whether you're talking engineering or economics, ideas are lying around, but they get, they get some oxygen when things become a bit more chaotic. So it's a good time to talk about that. And the other conversation that I wanted to have is more around your more... Some more, shall we say, sort of bigger picture ideas around the term that you sort of coined around this idea of the new dark age. And I think we'll start with the, the climate change conversation and then move into the, the new dark age point of view, because that covers a lot broader topics. And I think that conversation could be fruitful to follow on. Hmm. So to start off with, maybe you can just introduce people to the big thesis behind your book over there and your ideas around deep sustainability going forward.
0: Sure. Um, Like any sane person, I want to live in a nice environment. Uh, I don't think environmentalists and certainly not green people uh, don't have a monopoly on that. Uh, I've been looking at this ever since I was a small child. You know, we all see things on TV and we get upset that the rainforests are being chopped down and all of these sorts of things. And there were environmentalists like David Bellamy in in my early teens watching him uh, trudging about in peat bogs talking about how they were being drained and uh, producing lots of carbon dioxide and wrecking the environment and uh, you know a decade or two later you know he was ostracized from the community because he wasn't following the complete line on the on the green dogma And it seems that again and again, uh, greens are the enemy of the environment. Uh, They they start off with a very well-meaning approach. You can't deny that they want to make the world a better place. But they look at it in such a shallow way. The very first thing that crosses their mind, that's all they go with. And they just, uh, well, this will reduce CO2 locally, so let's do that. And they never think about the consequences of that that might make CO2 increase dramatically Elsewhere. So, for example, uh, the U- European Union decided to go uh, all in for biofuels and mandated that two or three percent of our fuel that you get in the petrol station has to be produced by biofuels consequences of that was an awful lot of the rainforests in the Far East Indonesia and Borneo uh, were chopped down in order to make space for palm oil plantations. So we lost huge amounts of forest and we lost, uh, well, a lot of communities actually were, were relocalised, uh, relocated in, in order to make space for those palm oil plantations. So they lost their livelihoods, they lost their way of life and quite a lot of people then died of starvation as well because some of the the crops were used to make biofuels so the price of the of the food went up through the roof and about an estimated three hundred and fifty thousand people probably died of starvation because they couldn't afford to buy food as a consequence of that green dogma so i got lost my patience with this after decades of this nonsense And decided to confront it by writing a book on what proper sustainability would be. I want to live in a sustainable environment, but I don't want to live in one which just uh, tickles the egos of people that call themselves greens and actually make the environment worse. I want to get a genuinely better environment. So you look at the whole system for the whole life cycle from an engineering point of view and using proper science, not politicized science. And then you can come up with some sensible rules for how you might make an environment which is sustainable. So, for example, uh, it's, it's well, well acknowledged now that if you've got lots of money, one of the first things you do is you want to get a nicer environment around you. So you pay for more uh, trees on the high streets, you pay for nicer parks, you pay for some of the land which is being used for uh, crops to be changed back to nature and so on. So as economies get richer, they look after the environment better. And when we were poor 100 years ago, uh, some of the rivers in the UK used to catch fire on a regular basis because that was a dumping ground. And people used to just chuck everything in the rivers and they actually used to catch fire at the surface of the rivers. It's, it, 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 it's like the, um, the River rank in your Terry Pratchett novels, you know, that sort of <laughs> thing. And, and uh, I remember as a teenager going down to our local river in Belfast, the River Lagan, which was so polluted, you had to get your, river, your, your stomach pumped if you fell in and you'd go to hospital because you would die and then a few years later they got it so clean that they were reintroducing trout into it and then it became a major leisure uh, result and this is because of the economy being better off and people could afford to look after it and yet you see a huge overlap between the greens and the anti-capitalists are more or less the same people and they want to reduce the uh, the well-being of the economy to reduce it, make it all communist. Uh, you know yourself very well how well that would work. Uh, we'd all be reduced to the lowest, lowest common denominator. You know, fighting yeah. over the last potatoes in the fields. Uh, we would Equality not have a pleasant environment. You could just take it so, down, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, And
0: uh, one of the biggest problems we've got in the in, in the climate is the black carbon that goes into the air from people burning wood. And a lot of greens talk about burning wood. Oh, it's renewable. You know, you can just build another tree. So uh, I'll grow another tree, I guess. And um, you burn that one down. But all of that produces lots of soot, which goes into the atmosphere. And that's one of the major causes, uh, causes of of the deglaciation. You know, the glaciers uh, melt because the carbon lands on the top of them, makes them darker, darker and they absorb more sunlight. So they melt faster. And that's part of the... The North Pole melting as well was was the uh, black carbon from coal fire. So we need to get rid of some of the stupidity out there. We need to stop people using uh, wood burners. And we're starting to realise that now. We need to stop people burning dirty coal, which we were very successful about until recently. Now China and India are building much more uh, coal stations again. And we should have been moving people to gas, which produces half of the CO2 and uh, uh, is, is actually quite clean uh, the reason we shouldn't go health leather for our solar and wind is because they don't work all of the time and the technology is still not very clean uh, they, do, they do, do a lot of environmental damage in themselves so we really should take that cautiously and do an awful lot of development work in there until we've got really good quality solar and wind and then we should use those properly in conjunction with nuclear and hopefully fusion in a few years time too so there are lots of good ways of doing and Environmentalism, and there's the green dogma way, and the green dogma way never works. It always makes the world a worse place. It impoverishes the poor people even more, it makes their quality of life even worse, and it wrecks the environment. It doesn't accomplish anything except massaging the egos of greens. So I really hate that. And I wrote this book, Total Sustainability, which looks at the, the social aspects, uh, politics, economics. It looks at all of it and links how those link together and comes up with some sensible policies for what we should be doing. And it's really common sense. And environmentalists that have read it and uh, not used their green hats, uh, most of them actually quite like it. And I'm going to be writing another one with uh, somebody who is actually an environmentalist much more than I am. And we're going to rewrite that book because it needs rewritten. It's a bit old. Uh, And uh, we'll we'll do an update on it. But there's there's nothing in there which I would regret. And most of it's uh, pretty much come true. And I warned about a lot of green companies going bankrupt and they have. And I warned about the consequences, which were pretty obvious to anyone with a brain cell, uh, that these green policies would do. And they did. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really nothing I would regret. But we do need to be cautious about the climate. I'm not a climate denier. I don't know anybody who's a climate denier. What I don't think is we're heading health leather towards a climate catastrophe. Uh, my view is that. Uh, The climate models have been exaggerating the impact of CO2 and underestimating the impact of solar effects. And I have some personal involvement in this. My father, Gordon Pearson, way back in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, produced a calibration curve for carbon-14 dating. And in in, in doing that, they uncovered or confirmed the 11-year solar cycle is also there in the tree rings. And they looked at the mechanisms for this and they discovered that it was uh, due to the the radiation landing in the atmosphere, it causes more carbon-14 and therefore the carbon-14, the radi- radi- uh, radioactive carbon, it increases with the solar cycles and it decreases when the solar cycles at the other end. So there is a very strong impact of solar cycles on the climate. And you can measure that by the radioactive uh, carbon-14 that you see in the atmosphere. So you can prove that way back to the 1970s and 80s. And I helped with the maths and uh, physics and that. And uh, it, it, it's there in plain sight. And yet... None of that appears in any of the carbon dioxide obsessed uh, religious uh, carbon dioxide zeal that we see. Um, which treats the climate as if it's only driven by one single thing and then you ignore all the impacts of chopping down the rainforest and draining the peat bogs in order to put up wind turbines and you get all sorts of stupid results. I'm a scientist. I've always been a scientist. I look at the basic science without any real prejudice and say, well, this is actually what the science says. Let's do that. And if it offends my personal politics, I don't care because I'll put that aside because I want to live in a nice world. So that's what we should be doing with the environment. Ignore the Greens, lock them up, throw the key away and listen to the proper scientists who aren't politicised and let them get on with it. Sadly, that's getting difficult because even the Green Science is being politicised and the activists are self-selecting to go into those jobs. So an awful lot of the Green Science that you see is very politicised and you've got to use your... Uh, best discernment skills to work out which bits are actually sensible and read properly, and which bits are obviously written by an activist. And you can still see that usually.
1: That's an interesting way to put it. And I think a lot of those issues that you're addressing have the same underlying issues when it comes to economic debates, right? Because we're trying to determine two things. Firstly, we have to get people to agree as to what we want, which is not as easy as it sounds, but it's still easier than the other challenge, which is getting people to decide on how we're going to try and achieve that. So there's, of course, a sort of empirical rationality question. Do we understand the impacts of the policies that we are proposing? And the more sort of instrumental side of that is to are we choosing things that are going to affect the end results that we want? Or are we inadvertently going to actually end up doing something that makes it worse? And quite often these debates around whether they are environmental issues or economic issues get hung up on the what we need to do. And they also get hung up on managing and measuring certain metrics. Generally the things that are easiest to measure, right? So in the climate thing, we tend to, we like to measure carbon, as though we think that that one thing is not part of a, a giant system. There aren't multiple effects in play here that are all going to you know, change how your policies, your best laid plans actually end up working and where we end up ending at the end. Same thing plays out in economic policy. Whereas if we try and affect change in any one particular metric, whether that be equality or poverty or employment, whatever metric we pick and focus on, we can often fall into those sort of paperclip maximizer or minimizer problems where we end up throwing all of our resources and all our attention and fixing one number, not necessarily noticing what happens to all yeah. the other numbers. And these yeah. are complicated systems. We're talking whether you're talking economics, or whether you're talking the environment, you're talking about messy systems, systems that we cannot reliably predict. We can predict macro trends to a certain level, but on the micro side, we absolutely do not have, within our human capabilities, even with all of our fancy computing, accurate enough models to be able to make accurate predictions about economic or ecological systems. And in fact, it should be easier to predict the economic systems because we made them ourselves, right? Whereas environmental systems are part of the whole great big world out there. They involve absolutely everything. So when you start to attack really messy problems like this, problems where you have to think many orders of magnitude into the future, looking at how those systems become very chaotic, very small measurement error in our models today, turns out with wildly divergent outcomes at the end. How do you, as a futurist, as a scientist, even begin to try and unpack that? Because, of course, are we dealing with the the economy, we're dealing with the environment, we're dealing with healthcare systems. The first thing we should be doing as a policymaker is to make sure that we're doing no harm. I mean, that's that's the the basic sort of commandment if you are entrusted with with choices that are going to impact many generations into the future. How do you unpack it in such a way that we can be at least a bit more confident at the policies we're choosing to push? We're not getting attached to them from an emotional perspective, but rather we are at least admitting that hopefully we need to use our rational capability to make sure that we're not making things worse. How, how do you even begin to start to advise people on that?
0: Yeah, I think it, it, it really does come down to applying common sense. If you engage your brain and just do common sense stuff, you can actually come up with some quite good stuff. Uh, yes, we've got computer models. We've got fantastic AI. We've got enormously powerful machines. You can number crunch whatever you want but that only works if you've actually written the code to tell the computer exactly what the number crunch. I, I, I used to work in, in modeling right beside our economics group and they were futurists as well as I was a futurist. And I'd spent two or three years in mathematical modeling using that to do futures in the early 1990s. And I discovered that it works fine for very close systems where you know every single variable and you know how all those variables connect together. And You can count beans, but if you're not counting all the beans, you're only going to get part of the answer. And um, the trouble is, a lot of the really really important beans, we don't count. So let's count the CO2. Let's count the number of wind turbines and the solar panels and the energy consumption. Uh, Let's ignore all of the social political effects of that you're going to end up with a rubbish system. Those things impact on it, and it's not very easy to quantify and describe how all of that interacts. You know how complicated economics is, and engineering and uh, nature, every bit is complicated, and you don't know all of the interactions. But when you sort of get a hunch that there is some sort of connection between this and that, your brain can process that. The computer can't because it doesn't know the exact equations. And if you had super duper AI, which was able to learn all of those things all by itself, that would help. Uh, But we're not really at that point. And at the moment, we're going through a bigger problem with the AI is that the activists are getting in there and making a mess of the AI, too, because they want the AI to come up with the result that they think is politically correct. And we'll get onto that more in the dark age stuff because this is all connected. And the, the, the problem is you've really got to use fairly honest uh, science and try to get an actual honest figure from the AI, and then you can choose what politics you want to apply to that. Otherwise, it's fake AI. You've got to get really accurate results out as far as a completely impartial AI looking at objective data. It doesn't matter what results it comes up with, and if it says these really unpleasant things... Well, then you should decide what to do about that. You say, well, this is very unpleasant. How do we deal with that? How do we fix that problem? You shouldn't say, let's just ignore the truth and pretend it's not real and just label it as fake news and throw it in the bin. That's not the approach. So get the computers to give you the best possible inputs. Use your your brain and your emotions to deal with that. And then you come up with a solution which will work. And people are very good at dealing with very fuzzy data. I mean, you know that if you impose something like uh, carbon taxes and carbon offset schemes, a lot of people will decide that's a very good investment to get into. Exactly how many... Well, there it isn't becomes an equation. a
1: maximum, right? Yeah, there isn't an equation
0: to determine exactly how many people will get in. Uh, there isn't an equation that describes how devious some people will be. And there was a fiasco in Northern, Northern Ireland where uh, people were incentivized to uh, generate... An, uh, uh, energy using clean technologies and stuff and they would get rewarded for that and some farmers were building great big barns and sticking heaters in them and just heating completely empty barns for no reason at all except to use more of this energy because the reward that they were getting for that was more than the cost for the electricity so somebody designed that it didn't occur to them that anyone would misuse this to get lots of money. And the government had to give millions of pounds subsidies to these farmers who were just on this get rich quick scheme uh, because nobody had thought through the obvious consequences of that green policy. So, you know, uh, you you come back to stupidity again and again. (laughs) If you disable the stupidity by actually engaging your brain and applying common sense, and it really is just common sense. You know, if you incentivize someone to behave badly, they will behave badly. You know, we all know that. You don't need to be uh, 60 years old to discover that. You discover that when you're about three Uh, Unfortunately, our politicians seem to ignore the facts and they they just want to go for whatever gets the most points on the headlines the next day. So ignore all of that, you know, use proper science, proper engineering judgment, an awful lot of common sense and business gumption to work out, you know, what would somebody else do to exploit this scheme? How do we guard against that and make sure it goes the right direction? And then you get a good policy. But you've got to look at every aspect of it, not just the one that crosses your mind first, as most of the greens do. So uh, ignore all the greens always, and you'll always come up with a better policy. It's my my best view.
1: But what if what if you get a good one sometime? You can't even, you can't even use those heuristics, right? Because it's just that just becomes an exception as soon as you make the rule, right? That now now yeah. they're incentivized to change behavior, oh, yeah. and that's the I mean, core said, right? <laughs> Incentives just absolutely. Yeah eat intentions for breakfast.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I knew some very nice Green people. Um, Some of my friends are greens and I just put up with that and you accept that sometimes they will say something which you think is blindingly stupid, but well, they're nice people, so you're still friends with them. And I've I've worked a lot of times with environmental groups like Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and without exception, the people I've worked with are very nice people and they want to make the world a better place, just like I do. I'm not condemning their motivations. A uh, few of them are communists, and I would condemn their motivations, but they, the majority are just, you know, quite nice people, slightly, uh, well, not left extremes, but they're usually lefties, but uh, um, nothing wrong with that. It's just, uh, you know, that's their politics and their value sets. They, they want to make the world a better place as they see it. But unfortunately, they don't always think it through. And a few of them make ridiculously stupid comments. So uh, I, I, I said once, you know, we need to do more science to work out how this works. And I got a comment back, I won't mention who the lady was that said it, but she said, the last thing we need is more science. Science wrecks everything. And I thought, this is so silly. It's like standing on the top of a cliff. Uh, with a blindfold on on the very edge of a cliff. And all of the, the Greens are shouting, well, oh, you've got to do something, you know, do something. And uh, somebody, the, the guy says, well, let me take my blindfold off. And Somebody screams at the the last thing you need is more science. Don't do that. Just do something. You step forwards and you fall off the cliff. Uh, so it's, you just don't come up with good policies that way. It's really not a sensible way of doing it. So, uh, um, yeah read yeah, book I think if you don't understand. want to buy it you know just email me i'll send you a free <laughs> copy of a PDF. and it's uh, um it really does need an update but it's if you get the pdf one it's a slightly revised version which is slightly fewer mistakes in it and uh, just drop me an email
1: all good so when it comes to those incentives coming into conflict with those Best laid intentions. Hmm. What are some of the current policies that you've seen? Because you are based in the UK, you're quite close to the European point of view. You understand what's going on in the EU. And the EU, of course, is leading a lot of the, the policy conversation around how to deal with climate change. What are some of the best laid intentions that you see going horribly wrong that are currently being implemented by our global leaders?
0: Well, I mean without a shadow of a doubt the most stupid one we've ever introduced um, and that's up against some stiff competition like HS2. Uh, the stupidest one by far is this carbon zero policy by 2050. It is going to bankrupt the UK economy. It's going to cost on average about 25 to £30,000 uh, per person to do this. And you know I can probably just about afford that, but an awful lot of people on lower incomes will not be able to afford that. It will cast a lot of people into energy poverty. And the consequences of that, will be virtually unmeasurable. It will have a tiny fraction of a degree difference in the global temperature, like 0.01 degrees or something. You wouldn't even be able to measure it. Uh, and we're doing this at the same time as lots of countries are putting in loads and loads of, of coal stations. Um, and the, you know the rest of the world is going down one route and we're thinking, oh, we should be setting an example. Well it's one thing setting an example is another thing as daniel Hannan said this morning uh, there's another thing completely bankrupting yourself and showing everybody else just how stupid it is to go down this path that is not setting a good example and it's not productive um either the best example we could do would be to imp- implement some sensible policies and said okay. well such as uh, you know putting in more research and development funding into green technologies And, you know, fusion and solar panels and super cables to get energy from the Sahara into Europe and so on. Uh, You know, those sorts of policies would be very good, but they don't work quite yet. So we need to develop the technologies better and we should not be wasting loads and loads of money doing other things. And we just saw consequences in Germany where they've spent, I don't know, hundreds of billions of, you know, putting in solar farms and wind energy and closing down nuclear stations left, right and centre. They're wasting huge amounts of money to try to get a less CO2 uh, in uh, p- policy and the consequences, there was no money left to do anything like flood defences, so they ignored all of that sort of stuff, and then they get flooded, and they try to blame it on climate change. But it's probably just because they didn't put enough money into, you know, fairly obvious things like putting flood defences on riverbanks, um, where you, if you insist on building on a riverbank because you need more housing. Well, you should expect that to flood. And when it floods, you can't blame it on climate change. You should blame it on stupidity. You should not be building houses on floodplains without giving them proper protection. So, you know, there are a lot of examples in England, and Germany, all over the developed world, and America's going down this path too. They're intent on wrecking their economy uh, in order to achieve virtually zero impact. I mean, the whole of the Paris Agreement, I mean... uh, uh, <clears throat> it's been estimated that if you implemented that in full, it would make 0.1 degrees difference to the global temperature. And yet it would cost trillions and trillions of dollars to do that. So, you know, that trillions and trillions of dollars could be spent in lots of other ways, like trying to get rid of world poverty or eradicating some of the major diseases in the world or, you know, doing all sorts of things. And it's uh, spending it all just on a policy which is hardly going to have any impact on mankind at all. doesn't really seem to be very sensible. And 0.1 degrees isn't really worth having. You know, uh, that's how much the temperature changes between getting up in the morning and finishing breakfast. You know, what's what exactly is the big deal with that? You know, there's a slight impact, you know, in terms of migration of insects or something. But, you know, there's also benefits. I mean, we've just seen the, the highest harvest ever in India. Uh, th- th- this is not a negative. You know, we need to feed more people. And we've just got record harvest from India because there's more CO2 and there's um, Temperatures are a little bit better, and the uh, the crops are growing better. So you get more
1: greening. idea, right? How can uh, you even uh, say that on the internet? It's like, you know, <laughs> they're going to come find you now. <laughs> I think I've, been
0: it's, I've this a, made
1: this point before. Like, you have to be honest that as much as climate change in the direction that it's heading is hugely devastating for vast swaths of humanity. Hmm. There are a few people that are, shall we say, incentivized again. And once again, incentives, eat intentions for breakfast. There are certain parts of the world that are materially incentivized to not just resist things like the Paris Climate Accord, but to actually actively work against them because they would be direct beneficiaries of climate change. It's a very unfair crisis, much like economic crises. Again, Mm. they are very unfair. They tend to have some people that are winners and other people that are losers. I think it is going to be a huge global geopolitical challenge to get all nations on board because not everyone wants even the same thing, which came right back to my very first point that I made to you getting people to even agree as to where we should be headed Mm. is enough of a challenge. And now we are still obsessing over our favorite pet methods in order to get there. I think that we have grossly underestimated the underlying base getting everyone incentivized in the same direction if i was in charge of global climate policy i would be talking about that elephant in the room how do you actually ask a russia for example to how do you get them on board when they are kind of laughing at you in the background if they are incentivized to have a slightly warmer planet would suit them just fine even as it devastates parts of the USA, and it completely wrecks economies in Africa. Those are very different incentives. How do you yeah. even get everyone aligned on the same incentives? If you don't talk about it, you can't solve that problem. Very unpopular comments. I mean, like people yes. don't, don't want to hear this. But that's, of course, when, when it comes to being a rationalist and a futurist, you have to get people to understand the world as it is right now, not the world as you think it is from your perspective or the world as you would like to imagine it is, you have to understand the world as it is and you have to understand people's actual incentives, not the ideal human, the ideal econ's view of the world, but the view of the world from someone that has a very different background, a very different set of desires, a very different environment that they are living in. We have to understand the world as it is if we want to have any hope Of making it better in the future of course once you understand how it is you still have to get everyone on board to persuade them to all walk in the same direction but instead we are we sort of we are to use that classic sort of thing sort of shuffling deck chairs on the titanic arguing about what percentage of carbon is permissible or you know what price the credit should be priced at this week which is all just very minor detail compared to the much bigger issues that we really are facing over here and i think that that point's probably a good place to sort of segue into the bigger conversation which i wanted to lead up to and just to give a bit of context there on the show before i had a guest called perth toll who made such a wonderful perspective because she invests in what she calls investing into the the freedom index and what she's found is that good things tend to go together Countries that have freedom, freedom in terms of both economic freedom and social freedom tend to also have economic growth. And like you pointed out earlier, they also tend to be more environmentally friendly. So in general, good things tend to go together, but there's a flip side to that. And that is that bad things also tend to track together. Economies that have terrible politicians tend to fare worse than economies that have good politicians. Quality of life is bad in all directions if you live under bad governance, and it is better in almost all directions if you live under. Good governance. And that's where I think that you and I share quite a few concerns about the sort of policies that are being put in place, not just the unintended consequences of things like environmental policy that wants to sacrifice growth in exchange for sustainability, whereas, you know, common sense would tell us that sustainability and growth tend to actually go together. They're not enemies. If you want to get both, you get both, right? Uh, At the same time, you know, those policies that are are influencing and perhaps going in the wrong direction inadvertently in the ecological space, the same sorts of patterns are playing out across large parts of the world in terms of other other sorts of politics, which comes to your whole thesis of the new dark age as you're terming it. Maybe in your words, do you want to describe what that means from your perspective? Not just literally the lights going out because we have badly managed energy policy, but it's a much bigger sort of darkness that you're talking about.
0: Yeah. I mean, this whole idea came from looking at things as a complete system and seeing why are people making these really stupid decisions? And it became obvious, even in the 1990s, it was becoming obvious that uh, environmentalism Uh, and a few other isms, you know, people were adopting all sorts of uh, various things, and we were starting to see the beginnings of next generation hippies and things, even emerging in the uh, 2000-2005 period, I was writing papers about the nouveau hippies, and we've seen loads of those now, you know, they have forgotten what what they call them now, but they, there was a pick and mix spirituality, emerging in the in the 1990s people were throwing away religion and i'm not condemning or condoning that because i used i have been down that road myself i know why people go into religion and you know people, why they go out of it too right well, so, i mean yeah, there's reasons for
1: everything <laughs> is,
0: as, as people leave religion behind they don't stop being religious and they they still want to feel that they're a good person so they look around for other things One, you know I don't believe in god anymore but I'll be an environmentalist I'll believe in uh new ageism and new ageism was a plague in the 1990s everybody was going for it and it was just, it was totally destroying uh knowledge people were believing all sorts of complete nonsense like homeopathy and so on And uh, psychic stuff got, you know, way off the ground and everybody was marketing themselves as psychics and so on. And this is complete nonsense, very nonsense. You can prove all of these things are complete nonsense. But they this concept of a millennium hippie, uh, millennial hippie, your generation is the ones that really adopted this uh, big time. Not you specifically, but, you know, a lot of your compatriots and that's this uh, moral relativism, the. Uh, trying to say, well, my religion's as good as your religion. This belief's as good as that one, and and. What ifery? What aboutery? Uh, all came in there as well, you know. Well, Hitler killed uh, six million Jews. Oh well, you know. What about this? This other guy killed three. He's just as bad, and you know, it isn't just as bad if you, get, you know killing three people is not the same as killing six million. Sorry, that's you know, not the same thing. And just because your soldiers did something in Iraq or something, does not mean they're as bad as uh, as, as Hitler. You know, this we see these comparisons all the time. People throw away all of the objectivity completely out the, out of the room uh, so we need to get back to realizing what this is fundamentally about it's 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 a religion substitute and i've been saying that since the late 1990s and a lot of other people have said the same thing since and it's uh, it very clearly is it hits exactly the same buttons inside your head and makes people feel that they're a good person And in there, you know, a major headline is political correctness. That was the thing that started appearing big time in the late 1990s. And by the early 2000s, being PC was really what it was all about. So, you know, that had a basket of different beliefs in it. So you had to support this. You had to support that. And if you didn't, well, you're not as good as me. And let's have a Spanish Inquisition and, uh, you know, put, put all of these people on the Inquisitor's rack and force them to admit that they've made a mistake. And we see that all the time. It's got worse and worse and worse. So I I, I started writing about the new dark age in in about 2000, 2001. And I started publishing papers on it a couple of years after that and doing lectures at conferences. And I really believe it's a big problem and we're slipping very quickly into it. And if you start with uh, something that a lot of psychologists like was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can sort of look at that and we've we've got an even better physiological uh, layer than we've ever had before. In a lot of ways, life is much safer and uh, basic, you know, the basis of everyday life is fantastic, but we've completely undermined our safety and security layer. We've got everybody trying to wreck everybody else's careers, left, right and centre. Pete, nobody feels safe anymore. No, nobody dares say anything. Uh, your, your entire career is on the line every time you, you do a tweet. So, you know, people are terrified of this. And then that moves up to the social layer. And you've got everybody trying to uh, belong to these different tribes. And they're terrified and they're doing inquisitions and you've got to belong to it. So you've got to push the right buttons. You've got to do your virtual signalling uh, 20 times a day on Twitter. And you've got a gang up on anybody that says the wrong thing all of that is is a really unstable social layer that we've created and then that builds into the self-actualization layers and things as well so uh, I really feel sorry for the people who have gone down this road because they're living on a, a very higgledy-piggledy Maslow's hierarchy it used to be a nice stable pyramid it isn't anymore you've got bits falling over in every direction and it's uh, it's really really unstable. And we see things like an anti-science culture, and that very much comes from the green lobby. We've seen them producing enormous impacts on, on the green science, you know, the environmental science. An awful lot of that is very, very good, and I can't fault it. A lot of it is complete trash, and you should throw that in the bin because it's politically activated. And we, we, we see rejection of authority, we see the age of magic, where everybody's quite happy to believe in all these magical things. And we saw, uh, you know, the rise of all sorts of religious groups worshipping magic and being witches and all sorts of things. Nothing wrong with that if they want to do it, but that, that's all part and parcel of this new millennium uh, piety. But this emotionalism, the moral relativism, the social media bubbles that allow you to reinforce that, it's produced... Uh, A two tier society where you've got a, a, you know, ordinary everyday people on one side and the fanatical religious zeal uh, PC woke lot on the other side. And they're basically shooting anybody on the other side all the time as much as they can. And people one by one are saying, I've had enough of this. I'm going to cross the boundary. And once they're in there, they can't get out. And we've seen academia being taken over by this uh, semi-premium membrane, which allows people to become woke and politically correct. And if they ever show any signs of going against that and trying to leave, all of their colleagues will... Ostracise them and kick them out of these committees and stop them from speaking and deplatform them. So we start seeing people being going in one way and one way only into this world, which isn't dominated by science and rational thinking and logic. It's dominated by virtue signaling and being the most religious a zeal convert to this that you possibly can, and it's highly competitive. Everybody wants to be really safe, so they want to be at the extremes of this, and everything going, you know, whatever the day's fashion is, you've got to support that with enormous amount of zeal. And
1: I'm just uh, too. Just to jump in there, because I think it is a point that's worth clarifying in that there is a difference between wanting to to do good and be good Mm -hmm. in society and being, as you've termed it, woke. So I do think it's worth sort of unpacking those words because they are quite emotive words and they hit triggers and they sort of they make people choose a side on that. And there there is there is a good conversation to be had, but a lot of the the things, a lot of the issues, a lot of the the end results, the people that have come through that whole sort of politically correct Side and, and way of thinking, however you want to term it, whatever, whatever labels you want to slap into it, are genuinely good people. Again, like mm. you're saying, like a lot of the environmental stuff. So, so I'm hesitant yeah. to sort of label people and to say that they, they don't thinking, they're not, they're not, you know, like they're not, they're not good people, all the rest of it. I don't think that is the story. I think the story is more that what has happened, and you sort of touched on it, is the sort of polarization that you're either a good person, TM, or you're not. And if you are a good person, you have to accept, along with the things that you really want, things like racial justice and economic sort of more equality in the world and a more sustainable environment, all very good, noble causes, you also have to swallow a lot of side dishes. Like you're kind of getting a set menu and you have to eat everything on your plate. You're not allowed to say, I agree about the big issues, but these small things or these other things I actually disagree with. I think that the space is not that that there are good people and bad people, but rather that we are having to swallow a whole lot of side effects along with what we really want. And there's no space yeah. for someone to say, I want this, but I disagree with that. And there's yeah. many things. I, I, I don't have a unique tribe myself, and I don't think you do either. I think that's yeah. how we get along. We don't fit into the good people camp or into the bad people camp. We're just sort of like the, the confusing prophets in the wilderness sort of sort of saying, hey, I kind of like that, and I kind of like, like that, but you guys are right here, but wrong there. And there seems to be very little space for people to be able to have that sort of nuance. It's definitely a huge concern for me, particularly in my peer group, and I think in your peer group, perhaps there's not quite so much of this binary thinking in that if I want to fit in with, you know, let's be honest, I'm a sort of middle class, privileged white person in South Africa. If I want to belong to that tribe, there are a whole lot of items that I have to agree to. I think it's quite shocking that if you can pick out one thing, if you can get your opinion, say, on whether donut economics is good or bad, I'll be able to tell everything else that you agree with in public, because you have to accept that whole list. And I think that that's the real danger that we're talking about. Not that there are good people and bad people, but that we're trying to make people, we're forcing people to pick a side where there are no sides to be picked. We all kind of want the same things. I don't know if I've articulated that very well, but that's, to what what, you think what it, you're I saying think is safe. that
0: it's essentially become tribal. You belong to this tribe. You've got to do everything that tribe wants. So it's it, it's not about being good or bad. I mean, I'm in you know, all these mm. people that are politically correct and uh, woke. But I'm sure they're all extremely nice people, and that's why they're politically correct and woke. I mean, they've come to that decision virtue, to go down right? that road uh, <laughs> because they they use a different way of analysing things than than you and I. I look at the facts, and I like to think I take myself where the facts go. And if they say that this is true, then I'll hmm, that's all right. Well it disagrees with what I um, did believe, but it does seem to be true, so I'll change my beliefs. And that's what you should do. And if you belong to the tribe and if your identity comes from belonging to that tribe, it's much harder to do that. If your tribe says, well, you know, this stuff you've got to or well, that comes from this other nasty tribe. You're not allowed to believe that because they say it so it mustn't be true. Um, that's You're locking yourself in and you're reducing the amount of flexibility that you have to adopt uh, to adapt to new information as it comes along. It's very easy to just throw mud at it and say, well, that's fake news because it comes from the conservative press, or I saw it in the Daily Mail, so it must be trash. Well, you know, not everything in the Daily Mail is trash. Some things are, but some things are not. You, you should be able to discern uh, which ones are uh, in a badly written article with a few errors in it, but by and large are still true. And this other stuff is just uh, lunatic fringe uh propaganda you should be able to tell the difference you know that's the skills in growing up you should be able to develop that skill so you know this dark age is something we should be really worried about and we should be trying to reverse it fortunately we will see some reversal of it eventually people will start seeing good sense and it'll all come back to normal but it'll take decades for that reversal I estimate 30 years uh, since about um, 2010 maybe 30 years so 2040 we should be all right again but probably not before that and we've got a long way down to go before we get rock bottom.
1: What does rock bottom look like to you?
0: Rock bottom is a big brother society where you're policed constantly by mass surveillance Uh, all the time you're going to be on camera with lip reading and voice recognition and stuff Uh, it'll know where you are, who you're with, what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're thinking, even because you can even do the thought recognition to some degree in a few years' time. And uh, with all of the various gadgets on your wrist, you know, the the current Apple Watch doesn't do it, but the next ones might do uh, basic emotion recognition, thought recognition for medical reasons, but that could also be linked into their system for dictating what sort of news you should be allowed. Are you feeling stressed? So we won't give you anything... uh, Uh, that might stress you up even more or uh, you're starting to rejoice in this kind of stuff. So we'll have to balance that by filtering that out as fake news and give you this other news instead. You know, who knows where it will go once you put these big companies, you know, the Googles and the Microsofts and the Facebooks, and you give them access to this fantastic technology. The surveillance goes right inside your brain. It isn't just a face recognition. It's what you're thinking. And you will have the thought police that you have, um, You know, the full Big Brother package really is coming. And the head of Microsoft was on the news a few days ago saying that we're likely to have um, a Big Brother world by as early as 2024. And who am I to argue? You could, I can see the technologies are feasible by then if you choose to build them. So we could have that. Um, It'll take a long time to get out of it.
1: That is, that is, of course, the thing, right? How do you get out of that? Because this is a, talking about a sort of surveillance state, the likes of which our dictators of the past century could only have dreamt of, right? So it's yeah. like everything, everything those, those big bad men <laughs> from the 20th century wanted to do can now be done. So all it's missing is the big bad men that actually want to push the button, right? So the yeah. only thing that's sort of holding us back is, is the is the sort of the thin moral line, the thin line of niceness between us, which based yeah. on our conversation today is is thinner than ever.
0: <laughs> well, you know, they, even the people implementing the big the big brother, totalitarian uh, surveillance states, they think that they're making society better. They're stopping people from, uh, you know, saying nasty things. They're controlling crime you know the motivations are probably angelic the results are not angelic the results are a horrible world where you haven't got any freedom of speech or freedom of thought and you have to toe the line and do your five minutes of hate every day to show just how much you support this sort of thing and if you don't it's kind of like North Korea if you don't you you end up in prison or disappeared and it's uh it's just not a world I think that will be worth living in if it goes all the way down, unless there was the hope at some point, you know, we might rebel against it. Um, But the technology offers a different angle on all of this, and it worries me almost as much. Uh, And You're familiar with S.G. Wells and the time machine, and he ends up in this far future world uh, where you've got the Eloil and and, and so on. And they're living in this utopian life, you know, all the foods provided, everything else. They think it's all wonderful. Nobody has any idea how anything works. And there's a library with uh, lots of AI librarians in it, but nobody really goes there and nobody cares because life's easy and it's, uh, it, it's just wonderful. Why would you want to change it? And every now and again, they get harvested as a food supply by the Morlocks, and it's, uh, it's not quite so utopian as they think it is. And they're on the verge of collapse. If the AI system disappears, they would all starve to death because none of them know how any of it works. And already we're starting to see enormous compression of all the human knowledge into a tiny fraction of the population. You know, 99% of people know everything there is about pop culture and who does what on the soap operas and what's on Netflix this week. And if you look at all of the expertise on AI and how that works and how do you build a deep learning neural network or something like that, less than 1% of people know how to do that sort of stuff. They're the high priests of all of this. And when they've disappeared and replaced by the next generations who are just looking at the abstract levels of this and don't really understand it, It won't work very well and they won't be able to fix it. And we'll have these AI gods that looking after themselves and have evolved a superhuman status. You know, they'll know what they're doing and they become the Molochs. And eventually they see us as an interesting supply of compost to keep the fields growing well in this nice new, fantastically environmentally uh, sustainable world. Humans are a fantastic. Support of a source of, of fertilizer. So we all get converted to soil and green or whatever it might be. You can see this horrible future technology oriented dystopian world coming if we're not careful with this. We've really got to pick a better path down this technology route. Um, the extreme religious nut end of all of these things is something we should be fighting back against. We should be trying to reassert common sense, civilized debate and if we can't get back to that soon we really are going down a wrong road
1: yeah absolutely I don't, I don't know really what we do from here though do you have any advice for 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 leaders and for individuals because that's all well, very cheerful i mean like i know i know that but the the picture you've painted is the trajectory that we're on it's the the trend yeah. line if we want to sort of follow yeah. that forward and that's not a Not a pretty picture. The good news is, of course, that, you know, people like you and I, while we do still have any sort of degree of free will, which is something that I believe in rationally or not, I think that we do provide a little bit of chaos into the universe and chaos can be good. It can set us off a depressing trend line, right? (laughs) Yeah,
0: I I, I think uh, there are a lot of us that still recognise what real facts are and real truth is and don't just go for all of the nonsense on both sides. It isn't just one side. It is you know, nonsense from every direction. But we should uh, we should network and do what we can to try to resist this decline into the new dark age. But in terms of our leaders, I don't have any confidence at all. I look at our leaders and they've all got PPE degrees and they've been taught how to get elected and they get taught how to be elected by just going for whatever the population's telling them they should be doing this week and so they just fall hook line and sinker for every bit of of this stupidity going and you know Boris just seems to do whatever uh, Carrie tells him to because you know she's way into that and he doesn't seem to show any individual Judgement on any of this stuff at all. He used to. He used to write really common sense stuff. But since he's got in, <laughs> into it with Carrie, you know, she just tells him everything, and she's a fanatical green, so he does all the fanatical green stuff. And she wants all of these other ideologies. Well, you know, he goes for those too. And in the states, you see the same thing. You know, some of the population that they want to vote for them are going down this route. They pretend that that's what they want too. So they implement more and more of those policies, and it all gets out of hand very quickly. And I don't have any confidence for our leaders in in, in the States or pretty much anywhere in Europe or the UK. Um, They're just doing their own things. We need new leaders. So we have to bump them out of power somehow and get new leaders. But meanwhile, those of us who are still sane and can still see the world as it actually is, Uh, you know, we need to carry on resisting and being heretics and not be worried about that and just say what we think is true. And there are a lot of us. It isn't just like there's one or two. There are millions and millions of people like that. And, you know, that's enough to keep the resistance going.
1: Good point. But we've come to the end of our hour. So I think I'm going to give you a last chance to say anything that you wanted to get across today that you had not got the space to do. And then if you can also tell people where to find you.
0: I think we've covered pretty much everything. I, I'm, I'm actually optimistic about this. It isn't a hopeless road. Recognising you're going down the wrong path is half of the deal. But we do have the mechanisms for coming back down that path and going down the right one. So it isn't a lost cause. It is still worth fighting for. And if we do the right things, we can actually make the world a better place genuinely by getting rid of all of this nonsense that's plaguing us at the moment.
1: Perfectly put. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a
0: pleasure.